0: and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Sonia, one of the founders of the festival, and today I'm delighted to be introducing the wonderful Elizabeth Knox, speaking to Jane Forrest-Waghorn. The Guardian praised the absolute book as everything a fantasy should be, original, politically engaged and teeming with literary allusion. Elizabeth discusses her inspiration for the story, the references within to other fantasy traditions, and important messages the novel conveys about reality and the challenges of current times. If you haven't read the book, we wager you won't be able to resist after hearing all about it. This year's Marlborough Book Festival is taking place from the 7th to the 10th of July, and tickets are now on sale. Head to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz to find out more. For now, please enjoy Elizabeth Knox speaking to Jane Forrest Wakhorn.
1: There, now I'm organised, I can talk to you. (laughs) Good afternoon, um, I'm Jane Forrest Wakhorn, and it's my great pleasure that this afternoon I'm going to be talking with Elizabeth Knox. so here we are, Sunday afternoon at the end of an extraordinary weekend. Look at your beautiful copy, your beautiful hard copy. Isn't that yeah, lovely? That's my, hard, my hard English,
2: cop hard copy.
1: Oh. It's so beautiful. Sorry, a little Beauty. bit of envy. It's, it's gold. Yeah, little... it's that fantastic. Raven's Eye is gold. Yeah. Um, so here we have Elizabeth Dox. Now, I first had the privilege of talking with Elizabeth way back in the very first Marlborough Book Festival. So it's Welcome Back because that was back in 2014 with Mortal Fire, um, one of her young adult um, books. Um, And I deliberately say young adult because it's... um, My introduction to Elizabeth was through her young adult fiction Um, And I have just re-listened to Dream Hunter and Dream Quake and they are just such fantastic books. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah. fabulous. And I was very excited. I hope they'll get made into TV. Yes, I hope so too. I might have Mm. to get one too. Mm. Mm. So that would be fantastic. But Elizabeth, of course, has published 13 novels, three novellas and essays. Um, She is... In 1999, which is a really long time ago now, um, you uh, you had the Catherine Mansfield Memorial Fellowship. You then won the Dirt's Medal for the Fiction with the Montana Book Award with... The Vintner's Luck. The Vintner's Luck, which, of course, I think all of us know. I was... Astounded last night when you read the piece from the Vitna or um, Kimberly, Kim yes. <laughs> because it was so familiar. It was just extraordinarily vivid that description of the angel. Um, and then you, in 2000, Arts Foundation of New Zealand Laureate Award, 2006, Esther Glenn Contribution to Children's Lit. Um, the American Library Association. You have won awards for Dream Hunter and Dream, Dream Quake, and in 2014, um, Mortal Fire won the New Zealand Post Young Fiction, Young Adult Fiction Prize. And then in 2019, you won the Prime Minister's Prize. Mm, it was the right Prime Minister too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I would you can inc- give it to me now, thanks. Yeah, and you can give it, a, you can, a, I would recommend that if you're interested, go online and have a look at Elizabeth's website because you can read your speech there and they're really interesting. We were also talking about the imagination one. But then in 2019, you published this beautiful book, The Absolute Book. And... You sort of hit the headlines. You got sort of spectacular, really, in January two thousand and twenty, didn't
2: you? Yes. Well, yeah. It was. It was all rather strange, really, because um, what had happened was that there was a man called Dan Coys who had spent some time in New Zealand, and I'd never met him. Um, people kept saying to me, "Oh, did you have you met, have you met Dan when he was still here?" And I go, "Oh no, we haven't coincided." Um, but he was interested in. New Zealand writing, and he had um, asked Kirsten McDougall, who does the publicity at VUP, to send uh, some VUP books to him because he was just asking publishers to send him books, so you know, keep him reading New Zealand books once he'd gone home, and. um, And the books didn't arrive, and so he asked her again, which I'm infinitely grateful for, because by this time he'd been reading reviews of The Absolute Book in New Zealand, he thought, no, I really do want to read that. And he read it, and he loved it, and he wrote this rave review in Slate. And the thing about the rave review in Slate was not just that it was a rave, because anyone can be enthusiastic, but that it was an amazingly good description of the effect of reading the book on someone who likes the book. I mean, there are people who just go, what? But then there are other people who go like, yes, and he was one of them. So he wrote this great description, and then the phones went mad, literally. It was just, I woke up, and someone said, have you read this Slate Review? And I immediately went to the Slate Review and read it, and thought, oh, that's lovely, and then proceeded to go sleepily about my very slow morning. Um, And then, and then people started trying to get hold of me so it was people getting hold of VUP um, agents publishers in the states and then the film studios started on him which was ridiculous so we were taking taking calls from you know I would get off off looking at somebody from we were going up with the cable car about we'll be one or two days later and and Fergus looked up, going because he was doing checking all the VUP things. They, you know, they ran the phones VUP, and he went Disney to me, and <laughs> and then um, and then I went hmm, bad robot. <laughs> it was kind of like a it was this mad dream, and um, I got several. One agent came to me first, who ended up being my agent, and I he wasn't my kind of person I choose, like I choose agents usually who I think are kind of quite literary and like edgy stuff and and I didn't have an agent so I needed an agent, but this guy was the number three agent in the States. Um, his name is Scott Miller. And he works for Trident, which is the Trident Media, which is the number one agency in the States. Number three person, number one agency. And I thought, God, I... I," And I had lovely people talking to me. And and I had a week to decide. And then I just thought, you've never tried this before, Elizabeth. You've never gone with some money person. And then I had got feedback from various other people I knew in the States that he was a good person. Like they, what they said, oh yeah, he's a good egg. Was what I, heard. I thought. Well, okay, he's he's not a shark. He's a good egg. That's fine. And so I chose him. And then he held an auction. And um, yeah, and I didn't go with my highest offer. I went with, uh, I, I went with, I kind of con- ended up consolidating England and England and America, partly because. The English editor who wanted to buy it had finished reading it because of some friend at Cheltenham had given it to her because they had a copy and had spontaneously decided she wanted this book and had rung up and, you know, had got in touch with me and had rung up and, and, great, kind of, I want this book. But she didn't know anything about the Slate article. So she wanted it beforehand. So I was like, okay, this, this person, who, who's the publisher at Michael Joseph, editor at Michael Joseph. You've got it anyway. And then I thought when I I took the Viking penguin I was just trying to do Penguin Random House in both countries which kind of is I think it's quite a good plan but yeah. So that was it. But it was a mad, mad time and we were on cloud nine and then I got an agent at CIA so you know that's kind of useful for negotiating stuff about television and, and Dream Hunter and Dreamquake but um then COVID came along, and absolutely, almost every possibility just tapered off. So everything has still been great, but it hasn't been quite as, you know, there wasn't, I didn't, they didn't, all the book fairs were canceled. So yeah, so nobody went to book fairs with it. They were all, they had their packages. They were sending me their pitch stuff about the London book fair, and then the London book fair got canceled.
1: Yeah, so, and
2: so on. Yeah, so <laughs> festivals cancelled, cancel,
1: cancel, cancel. Okay. So it's still because that was one of my questions, My next question was: if, now that we've gone through our COVID nineteen gate, has it changed the course? So it has. It it, it has changed. Yeah, the... it,
2: it just it probably is. Everything is a little bit more sports, more scale than it would have been. But it's I'm still perfectly happy because I feel like there's a lot of. Authors up out there who were sideswiped by COVID. There's, I mean, there's everyone everywhere has been sideswiped, including vast tragedies and losses. So, one, I've got nothing to complain about. Mm. But I mean, there is part of me still because I'm human that goes, "Oh gosh, well, I wonder what would have happened yeah. without COVID." But we can all that do that about COVID, about things. Yeah.
1: Um, I wondered how, because Dan in his review focuses on the fact that it is a fantasy book, but I wondered when, if I asked you to, you know, in 25 words or less, (laughs) describe the absolute book, do you describe it as, you use the term arcane thriller?
2: Yeah, that's that's the way in. It has a It's a book with gates in it, and the first gate you go through is the arcane thriller gate. And an arcane thriller, I possibly invented the term, (laughs) is one of those books which has a scholarly hero, and usually they're in pursuit of some arcane object, something slightly magical, which, because arcane thrillers can be magical or they can be realistic. So Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code is... an arcane thriller on the realistic side and Kate Moss's Labyrinth is because it has time travel in it is uh is one on the sort of more fantastic side but specifically it's the idea of the scholarly hero that was my way into the book I wanted to I wanted to write a big book that opened up and opened up but which which kept people and things coming back all the time like Mm. it, it it circles and it comes everything comes back like people you think have vanished reappear and and it's always aiming at solving a mystery, and you don't for a while know why it's important to solve the mystery, but then it clearly becomes more and more important the you know the thing they're looking for is consequential to their lives and to the plot, so right. it's not just a thing in order to have the story wrap itself around it
1: so um. But even that's a bit of a trick, isn't it? Because really you start off focusing on the fact that Taryn, the protagonist, is organising the murder of her sister's killer. So that in itself is a crime. Yes, so it starts with a
2: crime, but intently a a crime of passion, a crime of revenge. Um, And that's – she's the scholarly hero of the story, but she has this backstory where her sister got killed the man who killed her got a got tried for manslaughter rather than murder because they couldn't prove intent, and it was murder. Mm. Um, but that's the way the law sometimes works, and I know that for a fact. <laughs> and um, she couldn't get over it, and she got in a position where she met up with a person who who wanted to do something for her wanted to be her white knight mm. and wanted to help her out with this problem of this man who who didn't get the justice that she thought does and she she just lets this man carry out her revenge and that puts her in a a tricky position mm. and I, it's quite funny that i get these people who say to me oh so you know what but is what she did enough for, for her soul to be damned, you know. Um, I mean, yes, yes, it is. I mean, under the rules of you know the Christian faith, it is enough for her to be damned. And they say, but is it enough for? I mean, why why do you know why does she get possessed by a demon? You go, well, no, that's what lets them in. But they're there for other reasons because yeah. they're trying to that they, they she's Taryn is possessed. Because the demon inside her is part of a whole group of demons who are a liberation movement, as it turns out, who are trying to find a thing which once passed through her grandfather's library. So that's the you know, that's the arcane thriller. In her grandfather's library and the house that they once owned, there was a thing that some other person, when she was just a 10-year-old, there was this man who worked for a grandfather who set fire to the library, and his personality changed completely, and he became a very scary person, and he set fire to the library, and he seemed to be looking for something while trying to burn the library. So, you know, that's the sort of essential mystery. you know. he's yeah. And he's, of course, the first... He's, yep. he's the possessed person.
1: And earlier i thought it was really interesting that dan when he's talking about your book cuts straight to the chase with shift and talks about him really early on which bypasses the thriller in a way and takes us straight to the fairy realm
2: yeah which is the heart of the book yes yeah and it is literally the heart of the worlds of the book too so it's the hub world
1: yes it is the hub world the first thing i'm going to ask you about is pronunciation it's she for the people and Sid for the place. She is the Irish for the fairy people
2: and Sid is the Welsh for the play, fairy place, fairyland place. Yeah. So I just went, well, no, Irish-Welsh.
1: Okay. So you, yeah. that was a deliberate sort of...
2: Yeah. So... Um... I wasn't calling them fae. It's supposedly respectable, for, but I
1: just don't like it. I like, right. Yeah. So she and Sid. Yeah. She answered. so that uh, uh, we go to the fairy realm. Yes, quite yep. quickly.
2: Yes, well, it feels like an accident, but yeah. So, um, yes, um, there, there's there's a, a, a dramatic scene plays out in front of a great archive library known as the um, Bibliothèque Magne in um, Aix-en-Provence, and I've been to this place, and. Um, Taryn is going there because she's been invited to look at the collection as part of her as part of her um, new life that she has found because she's written a book about the terrible things that happen to libraries about burning libraries and insects and damp and and about you know just just the bad things that happen to libraries a history of calamities in libraries so that's that's her life many years on from being involved in causing the death of someone. Mm. Um, and uh, so she's off to do that, and then there's this you know, and she's meanwhile being followed by the detective who was the junior, was a police constable um, investigating the mysterious death of the man who'd killed his sister after he got out of prison. And he's always thought she was behind it. So he's been following her around, yeah. um, you know, seeing what she's up to and generally because he's become obsessed, Jacob Berger, the police detective. And then there's this other character who turns up and or two characters, one sort of man who looks like boiled sweets like his face is like something really wrong. he's not just sweaty he's kind of he looks kind of melty, you know and um yeah and and he's lying in wait for well, he's lying in wait for the other person who's following Taryn because. This, who's who's shift and shifts the other major Tar and shift to the major characters yeah. in the book Yep. yeah and and shift is shifty he's, yes. he's not human and he's no and, and also no one really pays much attention to him most of the time. He just quietly he has a purpose throughout the whole book which is undeclared because undeclared because he doesn't think he can ever do it. so he doesn't want to break his heart by saying well what I'm trying to do is X. But it just quietly moves through the book, you know, he's there trying to
1: get something. But that's, they're not the only, I mean, there's the fairies. Yep. There's the humans. I think somewhere you talked so about. So shifts part fairies. Yes, so, yep. so uh, somewhere I read that you describing things as been diagrams of who people are, which I thought yeah, was quite yeah. useful <laughs> to put them yeah. in there. But, um, but that, it's not the only um, fantasy figures that come in drawing on other traditions. No, so I had decided that I was going
2: all in. I was going to write
1: an epic fantasy
2: that, that dealt with, all these, you know, magical creatures and and gods, particularly as if all gods were true, mm. and they just rose and fall, fell according to the to the faithfulness of their worshippers, and they could be corrupted by their worshippers and change their nature and so on. So, um, you know, there's there's one god visible in the book, and there's two demigods who are important characters: um, the ravens, Odin's ravens. Um, Hugan and Moonan, and there I made them female because I wanted to. <laughs> and I have to
1: say, I had such fun with them because they're such characters. They yeah. really. I mean, it sounds silly to say it. I mean, I loved Moonan. Yeah, she's, she's. Is that he's that she,
2: She's lovely, and she just she just decides that she's going to really like this police detective who's got you know just wandered into this. Totally unreasonable world, which he immediately decides he wants to be part of. You Mm -hmm. know, he's like, "This is insane." There, you know, I'm in another world, and this, this is all crazy. And I still know you killed that guy. He does. But meanwhile, he's like, "He's falling in love." I don't don't want. I don't want to let go of this bigger world. I found myself, and and she, this Raven, just decides she likes him.
1: Yeah. but you're quite playful about it because it is quite kind of funny that you have Taryn's father <laughs> <laughs> tell I've it had such fun with Taryn's father Taryn's
2: father i I don't know how I wandered into this and it was just when I was describing, when I was right in the beginning of the book and I was describing the the death of her sister and so on and I just found myself writing um because her parents are divorced i found Taryn's Terran's father at this time was in New Zealand playing the bluff fellow in a fantasy epic, you know. And then (laughs) I thought, okay, so he's in New Zealand in this fantasy epic, unnamed, and, you know, I don't don't try and make him be equivalent with any real person on Lord of the Rings, but you're left to think that. And also he does later keep referring to Peter in New Zealand, so we, we get that, and we even get... We even get one of Odin's Ravens pretending to pee Peter Jackson at one point, which is a pretty pretty silly scene, but quite fun. Um, um yeah, and 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 then this man, he's this her father, basil, he's um, he's uh, he's written a book about being working on that fantasy movie, which he takes to the Auckland Writers Festival. At the same time she's there with her library book, the book about burning libraries, his daughter. And so I have fun with that, <laughs> and um, yeah, and and at some point, they try to. Odin won't go and question demons. You know, they treat the ravens keep trying to get the god to corner the demons and ask them what they're up to, because no one can work it out. Mainly because mainly because everyone who's trying to work it out. Has an enormous, profound racism against demons. Mm. You know, it's, it's they cannot see what they're doing because they can't look at them as beings with with a, a, an agenda that's positive. Yeah. yeah, which they do have. So, um, yeah. So, so instead, they set up this great big fake thing where they um, convince Basil Cornick when he's in the festival, that he has to come down to Wellington to do a screen test pretending to be Odin for this fantasy epic that Peter's doing and with animatronic ravens. So the ravens are there pretending to be animatronic ravens and there's a real demon. And um, yeah, and it doesn't go very well, (laughs) but uh, but it was a a great hoot. Yeah, that's at, the at, chapter that's called Basil Cornick's Screen Test.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, the, the review in the Times, I thought, was really beautiful and it sort of sums up the way we're talking here. It says, reading the book is like holding folds of sh- sh- um, shot silk to the light, finding a green flash in something that looks purple and appreciating how thoughtfully the warp and the weave embrace each other. And Mm. I think that's a beautiful description of the story. Yeah, it was very nice.
2: That was the New York Times.
1: Oh, was it the New York Times? My best one
2: was the Guardian. Oh, man.
1: Yeah. That review sold so many books. Did it? Yeah. Is that because, uh, do you think that the fantasy traditions of... I mean these traditions are more sort of english centric in a way. do you think it's because that ah uh, i th-
2: more... i th- I think my English publishers really went to town on it right. you know they, they 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 really pushed it and and they did huge media and social media things and um I think it it paid off really, but the Guardian review was lovely, yeah. and I was very lucky to get such a fabulous review. And another one that described the book, what it did. But I have had the top Tolkien scholar in the world gave it a really good review in the Wall Street t- Journal. Oh, I haven't <laughs> I read that was really, one. That's really good. Really pleased with that. And I've recently just done a podcast with the professor, Oxford professor who who does who's now in charge of the Oxford Fantasy Society, which of course is the the, the thing that rose out of. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien mm. being there. And and so it's quite nice to sort of feel that like you
1: like you've been taken into that tradition. So I'm going to delve into that then now because we talked about that when you first go to the fairy world Yep. I thought, are we in heaven? You know, because it's really beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's really, really beautiful place. Yeah. And the light is amazing and all that sort of thing. And I, I thought... Is and this... the way they live is so rational and beautiful. Yeah, until yeah. you hear that, that about the The, the human, tithe and the human the, beings. Yes. Mm. Until you... And that's what happens, isn't it? It's like the demons are good. You know, the place that I thought was heaven also has this really grim side to it. Yeah. Um... They've all backed themselves into a corner. I mean, you know, there's just these competing interests where
2: people have basically made very bad decisions but trying to save themselves back in the past and are having to live with it. And it's like Taryn's decision where she was, you know, unable to get over her sister's death. She didn't give it enough time. She organised her revenge or let it happen. And then she has every consequence from that, Not, not just having been the person who did that but the person who committed the murder for her turns up in her life again in the book and he's a very, very scary person.
1: Yeah, he's so, awful. Yeah, he's But awful. you sorted him you saved, at least you saved Taryn and picture in the most spectacular fashion. I, yeah, that, that was, was I didn't
2: funny. even know how I was going to do that and then I
1: thought Elizabeth, you know how to do this and I won't say. Don't say because it, it, <laughs> it's, it's, I thought at first that can't be right <laughs> and I like, had to what? go back. Yeah, um, but really what I'm hedging towards is how much faith is there in this? Is, I mean, those, I mean, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, they come out of a Christian.
2: Oh, yes. So, no, I I, I was, when I was writing this, I was thinking that I was writing a pagan book because it, it, it has gods as being equivalent, like mm. they're a class of being and everything. But I don't know that it's, that's quite a correct description. Um, I just, it's interested in faith, but the the parallels between the gods being corrupted by their worshippers or confused as to their nature. So the great god of the deserts has closed heaven because they have become ill. So that's, you know, the Christian, um, you know, Allah, Jehovah yep yeah but that, that that being who comes out of all those traditions has mm. become sort of broken by things and part of that I like I had a very strong purpose in and you know in Odin's becoming sick because of white supremacists so, <laughs> but yeah tattoing valknuts on their yeah. man boobs as it says
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> But um, what I was trying to do was make the parallel with uh, uh, making it so that you had these great beings who you turn to in times of trouble and who are supposed to be um, sort of amazing, uh, immensities. They're immensities that are indestructible and pass through time and, and are always there. But the parallel was, of course, our forests and our oceans. And that is the story of the book. I mean, yeah. it's, a hidden, it's a hidden eco novel, right. and it hides its purpose, but, it, it, but it cut, it's like a green glow comes up through the book until yeah. you get where you get. And I was trying to get the parallel idea of, of us being responsible for our best hopes for ourselves and, and our forms of our ideas about saviours and gods and heaven and and the planet,
1: yeah, which so is, is God. Yeah. So is Shift sort of? Would you describe him as almost like a Christ-like figure in a way? No, not at all. He not isn't. All. He can't
2: be because, actually, technically speaking, because the myth, the p- mythical person, he is because he is a person from folklore and myth. Oh, is he? Yes, I didn't d- realise, yes, I hadn't found that. Way. It's, yeah, that it's cunning. cunningly. Yeah, but some people get it and some people well, don't. miss that
1: completely. Yeah. Yep.
2: Wow. Well, a tower, a stripping wizard, a troubled king, dragons under the tower. It's, it's all sitting there. It's just yeah, yeah. So, to. so um, in 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 that myth, which is the Merlin myth, because I might as well just say it in that myth. Um, there's a version of that myth that it's, it's uh fairy prince is Merlin's father. And there's a version where it's a demon, an incubus. Mm. And there's a version where it's the devil himself. And Merlin was supposed to be the Antichrist until, oh.
1: until baptized by a very holy human being. So, yeah. Oh, I'm that completely. That's terrible. It's as bad as me missing the cosmic stuff. Well, the I wasn't. Lingeries. I didn't
2: want to. I wa- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. want a swap it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's it's yeah. It's sitting there, and and some people. I don't know. I, I I do this thing where I, some of it is I think. Well, all right. This isn't necessary for a reading of it, and it might be a pleasure on a rereading. Yeah. If and other and other people go like aha. Because yeah. they're the ones who know all the myths few, really, yeah. really well. Yeah, because yeah. I
1: didn't know much about the Norse uh, about the ravens, no. so I enjoyed finding out about that. Yeah, that's right. well, that's right. Dives.
2: Like mm-hmm. the, some of the readers of a book like this are steeped in myths and yeah. folklore, so they pick up everything.
1: So just going back to the point of imagination for you, we were discussing that earlier when I I had written not entirely correctly, talk to me about the imagination. Your imagination that can gather all that mythology and and put it together to create an amazing story that is purposeful and and enjoyable. How do you do that? Talk to me about imagination.
2: Well look, honestly I think I just have the habit right. of um come out with stories and wanting to pursue them and they turn into books of one sort or another. In this book, I guess I had I had that as last night I was I was talking to Kim Hill and I was talking about that hard period in my life and my husband's life. Um, between two thousand and nine and two thousand and twelve more or less, tapering off forever with other things. But um and during that time I wrote Wake Immortal Fire, which are my dark and light books. And they were dealing with the same thing, which is more or less, what, can, what is it possible to do for people you need to help when there's next to nothing you can do? And it's a very strong theme of Wake. And, you know, it came out of those times. And then this book, when I started coming back to life after those years... And we did a lot of travelling, and I felt like I was walking through the world. We were walking through the world, and the world was getting bigger around us as we did that. And and part of that was just coming back to life. And I wanted to get that idea of the world being really big. And so I do it with worlds here. But the the idea of walking is very strong in this book. There's a lot Mm. of people walking their way into well-being one way or another in this book. And, um, yeah, the and and what I wanted to do is have Taryn come back to life because she's shut herself down into being a high functioning intellectual, but because she did this terrible thing of you know causing someone else to commit her revenge for her, that's sort of cut her off emotionally. She mm. sort of decided she hasn't deserved an emotional life, and um, I so I wanted my protagonist, to just come back to
1: life, gradually. Mm. Yeah, And that's sort of interesting, isn't it? Because at the end, can we leap to the epilogue then? Yeah, well... Because she's incarcerated. (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, some people don't like that because they... Well, all all her
2: friends don't like it either. Nobody in this book, apart from Taryn, wants her to go to prison. Mm. She wants to go to prison because it's the only way she can actually you know, sort of redress this feeling inside her of having done wrong. Yeah. Like, she doesn't she doesn't think it's socially necessary to be in prison or that it's society's right to have her there. But she feels that she is not going to get over it until she serves some time, sort of. So she's walking alongside the, the man who did serve his time and then
1: she got him killed later. So oh. when she
2: s- serves close to the same sentence...
1: So yeah. Yeah. she, is, so that is part of that process that you're talking about. That uh, I suppose I'm going background to the world and to the uh, to the eco part of it. That you have to face up to what's happening. We have to stand up and face up to what's yeah. happening in yeah. the world yeah. before we can redress it. Because yes. there isn't really a frost, a frost,
2: a frost giant. Yes. No, the there's no, no frost, frost giant. giant to save yeah. our glaciers. Yes, yeah. but the but the whole thing of the wish fulfillment ending, and it is a very strongly wish fulfillment ending, which it has some people just love it, and yeah. some people go. But 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 there isn't. But the thing is that we actually do. We do have now, godlike powers that can save us from climate change,
1: mm.
2: and there are governments. So it's not really what what the wish is supposed to make you think about what you're wishing for. You're wishing for the decisions to be made by greater powers. You know and you don't you don't want all the shilly-shallying around enough shilly-shallying yeah you know, billions of marine animals just died in canada i mean
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a fire in mexico in yeah, the sea yeah fire in mexico <laughs> come on people we need some mendings that's yeah, what we need yeah well we, we just need our governments to actually act
2: like it you know like the world's on fire
1: yeah um, I thought it was also interesting at that point in the epilogue where they refer to her as Valraven. Yeah, it was yeah. like the final, you know, sort of Norse. I had to look that up, Tony. Yeah. Yeah, yeah which I thought was really interesting. Yes, kind of, a, kind of a somebody who becomes
2: a hero by injuries and having caused injuries,
1: you know. It's, yeah. yeah. So can we just go back to... Shall
2: I, do it? Shall I do a time for oh, We were Of
1: course, let's do that now. Shall Sorry, I've carried away. We were no, going no, to do that first. Cool. Yeah, we were, and then I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll stick
2: my reading glasses on and I'll do a short reading. Okay. We're all right for time? Yes, we are.
1: Cool. And then we can have some questions. Yep.
2: Okay, so this is Taryn. She's she's in fairyland again. She well, the sid, which she loves. She's um, she's been in and out, and uh, she is on her way with shift to. I'm going to stand up. She's on her way with shift to this meeting that takes place um, every ten years where they all sort out their problems, and every hundred years they have the tide, And this is the moot, the meeting of all the people of of the SID, you know, the native people of the SID, uh, to decide which of their stolen human beings they're going to give up. Um, and so, yeah, so shift Sch- is about to abandon her and go off somewhere else unexpectedly. He's, he's rather like that, <laughs> like Aslan, you know. Yeah. Not there, there, not there, there, yeah. Taryn shouldered Schiff's bedroll as well as her own and went down r- river. She found a stretch of water sheltered from the current by the landing in a shingle spit. The water was sparkling and several other people were swimming. Taryn took off her clothes and walked into the river, which was fresh but not cold. She swam and rinsed herself and sat in the shallows. She even had a conversation with a middle-aged man whose face was stippled by white scars. It looked as if someone had been chipping away at him with a chisel. He spoke in a sparse formal French with much more fluent dialect mixed into it and a little English, enough for Taryn to tell him that she came from London and was a writer of books, and for him to tell her that when he was last on earth, he was a poilu, an infantryman and before that, a cobbler. He originally came from a village in Brittany. They managed that little, then sat companionably, the water hissing as it lapped against the thick mat of hair on his chest. She tried some of her she on him, and he taught her a little more, all of it related to the river, upstream and downstream, boat and sail, voyage and current. The sun left the water. Everyone got out and picked up their clothes and followed the sunlight higher up the water meadow. They stood and dried in the air. No midges or mosquitoes came to molest them. Taran put on her sweaty garments and joined the soldier at his fire, where there were several more Frenchmen, as well as two joyful Vietnamese teenagers who were making everyone pull their food for as much as a feast as they could muster. Terran contributed her walnuts and fresh apricots. Someone came around with a crock full of a powerful, juniper-flavoured clear spirit. The crock still had scabs of fresh earth on its sides, as someone had only just dug it up. It was clearly a piece of human provisioning because none of the she at the fires near Terran accepted any. Everyone at her fire ate and drank and got a little inebriated. They sang for a bit, and then tried to get Taryn to tell them, in her poor French, how the world fared. Was it possible yet to be poor and live decently? Were young men still sent to die in wars made by old men? Were the meek still waiting to inherit the earth as scripture promised, though generations of them were already under the ground and a grave wasn't an inheritance? Not really, Taryn said of the first, Yes, of course, of the second, and of the third, no, it's not like that. They made us believe we're weaklings. that we can't do everything for ourselves, by ourselves, we all say, so I've failed, when mostly we've been failed. They made us afraid of one another, but of themselves, they say, there is no they. Taryn's French didn't let her down. These were simple things to express, The people around the fire all looked at her sadly and nodded sagely. She stared at their human faces painted by the firelight and thought how those they loved and served would eventually sell them into perpetual misery. She wanted to tell them to run away. What were they going to say of themselves when their souls were marched through Hell's Gate and their bodies were buried, no doubt, with flowers and music and fine ceremony? Were they going to say, So I failed. Such and such, a lady or gentleman no longer loves me and has laid me by. Taryn understood that her existence was only of use or not of use to her society. She was a consumer contributing to economic growth, which was an unquestioned good. To exist, she must spend her life spending. But these people were going to be sold to buy more time for time-rich, heartless people. They were going to be literally damned by association, never mind the original state of their souls. Heaven would not intervene, as it did in Yeats's Countess Kathleen, because, for a start, none of these people was a countess. They were the numberless others of history, counted only by the tithe. They were marks in a ledger. Taryn wanted to say... I'm a consumer and a client, but your property, we have value, but it has nothing to do with who we are. But she didn't say that, because what good would it do when a true understanding of what was in store for them couldn't save them from any of
1: it? Thanks. Before we go to questions, I just have another question for you. You had written on your website sometimes I feel that although I've managed to become a writer my true aim is to become a book.
2: <laughs> yeah. would,
1: would you want to be the absolute book? Yeah, I'd be perfectly happy to be the absolute book. I think I think lots
2: of writers who have are infinitely endlessly grateful to dead writers, you know, like even if they were were living and you saw them in Vancouver and they stood in front of you, then I dead. I made mean, mm. should look one. What's left is the box. So anyone who wants to wants to, it's not it's not fame. It's, it's not fame. It's just a sort of idea that you're transmitting something of yourself out of yourself. The energy of your life goes into a book,
1: and it's pretty. <laughs> and it is true. It's really pretty. Yeah. Let's pause for a minute and see if people have got some questions. Has anybody got a question they would like to ask Elizabeth about this? I um, have. Um, not, not about the stuff, but um, they say that to be a writer, you need to be a reader. And um, you look like, um, I think, you're very well read. And you deal with a lot budding writers. So, what is the advice? about reading to most writers. well
2: just read but read widely and read books yeah and put your phone in another room while you're doing it I think probably too I think that the immersive reading is really important you can't write a novel without letting yourself go into novels and you can't be a forensic reader go like I am going to be a famous novelist so I am going to read Sally Rooney's um normal people and find out how she did it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah you've gotta you've gotta read with appetite, yep
1: Book Kindle
2: or both um uh, well, in our household, I use the Kindle because the the house is slowly darkening and filling up, and it's like the vines growing over the windows, but from the inside because of my book collecting husband,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Where do you get the names
1: of your people
2: in New York? Um, yeah, so I, I, the names are an art form, because you've got to have them be the right names for the generation they're supposed to be, and things like that, So, or their class, or so on. So um, I do collect names. I cannot go to a cemetery without stopping and writing down names. <laughs> Yeah, because there's great ones, but usually the very exotic ones which attract my eye. I don't often get to use them. But if you want a character who's distinguished, who's who's part of a believable milieu, but but you need to give them a name that isn't just an ordinary yet another yet another whatever name, and yet another Elizabeth. Say you you know you find something a little bit different just to kind of pin that character down. But yeah, so. Taryn, I wrote her as Sarah, which is weird because I've got a sister called Sarah, but I wrote her as Sarah um, until I was about two thirds of the way through the book. That was a kind of placeholder name for some reason. She was Sarah with an H, whereas my sister is not, but it is, she pronounces it Sarah, not Sarah, which in fact is if you don't have an H. Anyone else? Oh, yes, at the back.
1: Fine young winemaker. These the are young adult books you wrote prior
2: to this. How did influence this book? Mm. Anyway? Yeah, so writing the young adult books was an amazing discipline in um, uh, pace. Yeah. And also I think I because I developed my 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 formula of not depriving the young reader of hope. And then Having done that, I came to see that trying to devise a happy ending for a book is actually a much, much harder thing to do. and of course, now i I'm sort of addicted to the idea of doing happy endings or as close to it because this has basically yeah. got a happy ending yeah, um and and just because then they're hard, yeah, so it's a it's a it's a tonal challenge, and, and it has to rise out of how the book works. It can't just be tacked on or anything. So, so yeah, um, and I think I wouldn't, it wouldn't have occurred to me to start thinking that, apart from the challenge of not depriving your young readers of hope, which was my one of my rules I set for myself for writing for young people. Yeah. Good question. Thank you. That, I
1: guess that was the question I had, is how do you define... Young adult
2: fiction. Um, when you're writing it, because I have to put this, I don't find particularly simple or. No, but, but, but I do, I think I think the reader who needs a simple book can be any age, mm. and the reader who loves a more complex or deeper book can also be any age. So I don't think you're really writing for an age band. Band. You you do have to try and hold young readers' attention at the beginning, which is, you know, tricky. But, um, no, I just think my young adult books have young adult protagonists, and I don't deprive the readers of hope. That's it. That is the distinguishing features. And also, since I've been writing young adult books, young adult books have, in fact, become sort of simpler. Yeah, Um, to do with many things, probably. So uh, I've got one, which I'm sending off to my agent as soon as it's finished. And, um, yeah, I'm interested to see what will happen to it because it's not a, it's not simple. No, it's not simple, but it is very pacey. So. Is it within the same sort of...? Yeah, it's the same world, yeah. It's is just that... a different... It's, it's the mid-2020s, but, yeah, it's got the same sort of mythologies running through it in the same setting so it's just if you think of mortal fire as uh, you leave that world
1: and it's the early 1960s so this is this is just a bit ahead of now so, yeah. yeah so when you started thinking about the absolute book and you're talking about creating a happy ending did you have that in mind did it I like wa- you're talking about the circles do you have that circle in your head
2: yeah, and I, it isn't a closing circle. It was just um, that it that it never loses sight of its people in it. Like, right. you know, even if they're dead, it doesn't lose sight of them because you end up in purgatories and things happen yeah. there. So, so I wanted that idea that it was the idea of an intimate epic, that it would have this epic character, but intimate because it would keep turning back to the lives of, the main characters in it, and everybody they cared about, like it would just keep doing yeah. that. But the ending, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to write a book about someone trying to save the world, yeah, yeah. and I wanted to equip the story with the means of saving it, yeah. um, and in not in a bam, it's all done, the ring is destroyed way, but in a well, we'll do this and this and we'll take care of this lot first and you know, we need to sort of ameliorate the changes happening here and like just what our government should be doing now, in fact. It's just it's not it's not a model of how to because magic's involved, but it's a model of the philosophy <laughs> yeah. of you can't say, Oh, but we can't possibly do this because these people will suffer. You say, Well, what you've got to make sure is that you do this and make sure that those people don't suffer, even if it means paying money to do it, which, you know, honestly, COVID has been a bit of a test for that. Um, You know, you can either look after your population or you cannot. You can throw up your hands and say, yes, deaths are acceptable. But um, in the end, always looking after people is better sense for the communities and for society and for civilisation yeah just just letting fires burn is not is not a
1: sensible idea so will the so you've got a young adult novel that you're about yeah kings of this world Yep. kings of this world yeah and then what else and then nightmare and then I had to I have to relinquish it the, the the memoir yeah right so that will come out when do i don't know. know
2: when i relinquish it
1: Okay. I think my fingernails will still be embedded in it. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I it feels silly going back to ask you about libraries now that we've just talked about climate change. But I suppose in a way libraries have a role to play in this because of of the fact that they're central in communities and hubs and they things. Are. Are. Um can you just tell me about why you why libraries had such a important role to play in this book. Well I love
2: libraries. And and as as my opening night's speech, mm. anyone who went to that and heard about the Great Town librarian and my father, libraries literally save lives. And um and I'm I'm kind of aware of the way that universities are closing down the humanities because of market forces and other such things. And this idea that that human life has to be of some kind of utility, mm. you know, for this for this vast thing called capitalism, which we didn't sign on for, um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, libraries are the same. You cannot know what you're going to need. So when libraries are defunded and they have to clear out the collections and yeah. and so on, you know, it's a, it's a tragedy. And they're very vulnerable anyway. Um, whenever things get bad, when you when World War Two the the figures for the casualties of books in Europe and World War II are in this yeah. book. and and they're like, yeah, vast, vast destruction of books and the willful destruction of books uh, so for 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 cavalier reasons or for political reasons. and um yeah, I was just interested in that, that that valuing books and valuing people go together and valuing libraries and valuing community. Mm. They go together. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And that means that you focus on that, not just on the yeah. utility aspect of it. Yeah. Utilities don't need libraries.
2: Yeah, well we do need sewers and things, yes. as we know in <laughs> as we know in Wellington.
1: <laughs> as we know everywhere. Yeah. Well, it, we particularly know it in Wellington. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody else got anything else that they Yes. What happens to the factory
2: yeah. yeah so that's that's it's a good that's question. a good question because because course people get very bound up with the theology of my books. They sort hmm. of interrogate and they go well you know she hates God or whatever and um when they leave shift has made a garden and he, they and Terence's trying to work out what the hell why he's done it and he says maybe one day it'll be a gate and so you're left to think about Gate from purgatory to where? And of course, the obvious idea will be from purgatory to heaven because he cares about the people in purgatory. But who would he want to save? He would want to save everyone given up by the fairy people to hell and the tithe, including people he cared for. Um, so a gate from, a, he'd had to have a gate from hell to. Purgatory, which couldn't come about until the rebellion in hell is successful, which you know. So it's, it's just a, at the end of the book, things are happening that are lining up potential better, better outcomes for people and a wider and wider. And you know, he knows he knows what he wants to do, which is the, which is the most you can ever say for him. He knows what he wants to do, and he goes patiently and carefully about figuring out how he can do it. So, yeah, so Taryn and Shift leave Purgatory, and that isn't the end of the story for anyone in Purgatory either. So where are you writing the sequel? Yeah, ex- yes. OK, well, yeah. all right, so um, he's, uh, that's my <laughs> husband asking that because he wants to know that, obviously, being yeah. my publisher. Well, I had this great idea where I, um, when, when Taryn's out of prison and she's back in her family home, which has been acquired again, her you know her ancestral home, and her her um her active father is putting on a open air production at midsummer of midsummer Night's Dream casting fairies as fairies oh, that's <laughs> and so that's cool. where I'm at with it It's like okay this is the and it's like i am I'm, I'm visualizing it as a novella you know just a short a short novel based around this performance um yeah sounds great
1: <laughs> it's it's There, that's an excellent question, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, it's almost time for us to draw a close. Has anybody else got anything before? I think Elizabeth. Thank you so much. Your book is an extraordinary. It's been extraordinary for me because I've lived with it beside my bed for a year and a half, as a, and <laughs> delved into bits and out of bits. And um, it, I don't know if that's the prescribed way of reading it, but that's okay. <laughs> but you were you
2: were hoping for the audio book?
1: Yeah, I was going to just talk about that. I, I'm a big audio book listener, and I found it really frustrating because we can't get the audio book in New Zealand.
2: They've got that VUP gave up the audiobook book rights, and you know,
1: heavens. Yeah, well, or not heavens. Those Audible <laughs> people have to get on the <laughs> stick. Yeah, so uh, you can. The, there is yeah. a, there is an audio book, but there is know, an audio yeah, book. There is, and it's supposed to be really good. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, apparently we'll be able to get to New Zealand in September. You got it. How did you acquire it? when I heard about it on R&D, you had a very good. I don't remember being interviewed.
2: Oh, so it's probably before... No, it will be before the Australian publication and then they shut it down to get the Australian rights. Um, so it was when it was out in America, it was a brief period and it was the top-selling wow. audiobook so on So you got Apple it through
1: was, Audible because you can't get it through Audible now. Yeah. you yeah. nasty wee messages. So you, you Geoblocking. It was excellent. Yeah, I thought, right, I'm going to listen to that. because i you marathon training. Yeah. You wanted to go out and run for us. I'm mm. <laughs> so, kind of so far from home. Yes,
2: yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I have to turn around and run back the other way. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh well, thank you for that. That's encouraging. Thanks. It gives us hope and something for us to look forward to, um, and the sequel. Yeah. Sorry,
2: everybody, but I can't control these nasty geo-blocking evil Australians.
1: Yeah. <laughs> with their reliance on, on, anyway. Um, So thank you very, very much, and thank you for coming to Marlborough again, and thank you to everybody for coming to the festival. Um, It's been a really beautiful couple of days. It's always a great pleasure, but it wouldn't work if we didn't have people that came. So thank you very much, and thank you, Elizabeth.
2: Thank you, audience. Yeah. Thank Thank you, you. Jane. That's (laughs) all right,
1: I'm really sorry about shift. I'll go back and revisit. No, no, (laughs) Cool, now Elizabeth will be out in the foyer signing books, so please
0: buy your copy of the Absolute Book and she will sign it for you. That was Elizabeth Knox speaking to Jane Forrest Waghorn at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers who have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about this year's event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening.